Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. And you can also see past programs as podcasts from the same location. Tonight we have with us Lane Kendig. Lane is the founder and former president of Kendig Keist Collaborative, where he now serves as a strategic advisor. He has decades of experience in land use planning, growth management, housing, environmental planning, zoning and land use controls, site and land design, and impact and feasibility analysis. And he's currently working on an update of his landmark book, Performance Zoning. There's been a lot of talk recently among planners and design professionals about the importance of walkability to sustainable design. But in terms of the potential effects of walkability on carbon emissions, it's important to separate fact from fiction. Lane is here tonight to explore how the concept of walkability relates to four types of trips, commuting trips, shopping trips, recreation trips, and child-related trips. He'll discuss the connections between density, intensity, transit, and significant reductions in vehicle miles traveled, and he'll make a case for zoning reforms that discourage or prohibit auto-oriented urban development. Please join me in welcoming Lane Kendig. Okay, um, uh, good evening. Um, I, I think there's a real question, at least in, in my mind, uh, whether uh, walkability is as is important to sustainability as uh, as people uh, seem to uh, uh, to indicate. Um, you know, I think we all can agree to the, that walkability is basically good. Uh, that separating pedestrians uh, from automobiles is uh, safe, uh, and, and it makes walking uh, a lot more desirable. What we haven't been very good at in the past is really planning con uh, pedestrian connectivity. Um, and we all know that it's good for our health. How many of you walk every day? Hey, all right, good. Um, however, I, I have been disturbed over the last few years about um, promoting walkability as a key element to sustainability. Um, so that if we want to answer that question, a lot of it has focused that uh, walkability will reduce automobile trips, making a more sustainable community. As a planner, there's two really important elements here. Uh, can we significantly change the modal split from automobile to walkability? And even if you can change it, does that result in a significant reduction in total trip miles? Both of those are, are questionable. Uh, so, and, and I've added one additional category since, since, since I talked to David a while back. Uh, I looked at home-based trips to, um, uh, to work, shopping, uh, socializing, recreation, and the kids' activities. And I've tried to take a look at, at the length of those trips uh, as a key element. And the facts of walking are we aren't very fast. Um, we have a lack of patience on how far 
uh, were willing to walk except for dedicated uh, physical walking. The time is five to ten minutes, and if you look at the national averages, uh, the average walking commutes 11.9 minutes. We take a look at, uh, and again, this is the national statistics. uh, transit would be much higher here in Chicago. It's much even higher in New York and San Francisco. Um, but 86% nationally are taking a car one way or another. And for the single person in the car, the average trip is almost 30 minutes. Um, transit, surprisingly enough, is a much longer uh, uh, trip uh, they didn't have any data on the length of the bike, uh, travel time of a bike trip, uh, but it's even more trivial than walking, and it's 11.9 minutes. Uh, so the likelihood of a lot of walking trips, unless you happen to live in a rural hamlet somewhere uh, and work in that hamlet, uh, the likelihood of a, of a large shift in mode is, is, is dubious. Uh, shopping trips. Well, shopping trips are based on what the anchors are, and each anchor store has a population that needs to serve it. So neighborhoods are walkable. They fall within our, our, our distance guidelines, but drugstores and convenience marts are the anchor stores. Everything else is going to be teeny compared to that. The dry cleaner and other things, it may only be 500 to 1,000 square feet in, in, in floor area. Relatively small population. At the community level, the supermarket and hardware stores are your anchors, and they have a much larger population that they serve, which means that unless you're right down in the urban heart of Chicago, people are going to drive. They're not going to have any choice. and, um, and then region, and I lumped the region and subregional together for this. That's the regional centers, the category killers, building supply stores. They have a much larger population, and you're not going to go uh, to the hardware store and, and pick up eight two-by-fours and walk them home or ride them home on your bike, and even the Supreme Court figured that one out. Um, socializing trips. Um, how many of these are really walkable? Yeah, well, we can walk to our, our, our neighbors. That's easy. Social organization, on to. Meeting with friends, easy. If they're not in the neighborhood, um, you're, going to, you're going to drive. Eating out, likely to drive there, except in uh, the most urban neighborhoods. Recreational trips, yeah, we can walk for exercise from home. After that, picnicking, the movies, real theater, any one of the more active sporting events, museums, um, uh, these are all driving destinations. Uh, And trips for children. Uh, I see a number of you may have children. How many of you would uh, walk your child to your, your daycare facility? You're lucky if you can drop them off close to work. Um, and um, schools, at least in higher-income neighborhoods, even if there's a school bus or it's walkable, parents are driving and picking up their children. Um, and uh, the after-school events, 
My grandchildren, one plays soccer, one plays hockey, and the other does figure skating. My poor daughter. Um, <laughs> how do you deal with that? Those are not walkable uh, trips, and neither are any of the other kinds of, of activities. So if you go through this, there's very few of these activities that are going to be able to be made walkable. So that makes changing the modal split fairly difficult and uh, like the train. So my take on it is sustainable, in terms of sustainable strategy, walkability is a low-hanging fruit. Pretty easy. Oh, we're going to put in sidewalks. We're going to mandate that there's coordination between different developments. But there are too few trips that are walkable, and the distances of walking are too short. So it's, it's clearly uh, overhyped, in my opinion. I'm going to do a few little case studies looking at some new urbanist communities where the build-to line is intended to create a, a, a walkable community. Um, uh, I want you to look for, is a residential within walking distance? What's the market area for the retail? Are any people likely to walk here anyway? Uh, how is parking handled? And is it really an urban place? Urban places are walkable by definition. And urban, if we think uh, of this, are enclosed spaces. Spaces that are enclosed by buildings so that people can walk easily to, to any conceivable uh, destination. So here you have very uh, tight areas that are only walkable. Uh, uh, slightly uh, larger spaces. You get up to a DH over one, pretty nice spaces. The upper limits, downtown Lake Forest uh, with the Marshall, I guess it's now a Macy's store, but it was originally a Marshall Fields, uh, and all sorts of places. Uh, you're, you know, you have a D over H of three to four, and the architects tell you as soon as it gets much bigger than that, you're, you're out of it. It's not going to be urban. You can't enclose spaces. So the average shopping center has, is totally unworkable. Yes, from the outer edge of the shopping parking lot to the store is probably going to be under 1,320 feet. But is it a walkable environment? And, and the answer to that is, is no. Um, uh, this is... Ohio, um, they did a, a kind of an interesting uh, thing here. They have two lanes of parking as an island in the center of the street and then parking on either side. The unfortunate thing is that decreased the enclosed nature of this, um, and they only used one-story buildings, uh, so, so that's a problem. Uh, but... It's more of a problem when you look from the office building to the commercial or from the townhouses to the commercial and take a look at it. Parking dominates this system. They do have a mixed use. And, uh, in fact, I argued uh, at the, at the uh, planning conference uh, 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 with Mr. White, who is a, uh, one of my participants, and he said, oh, well, they're built to the street. They, they've got to be more walkable, more sustainable. Well, the anchor store here is a Walmart. How many people walk to their Walmart? Very few people will ever walk to a Walmart because 
the market area is much, much larger uh, than walking distance. And although walking down the commercial street may give you a sense of a walkable community, walking from your car to the, walk, to the pedestrian precinct is not. Um, this is one that's even better in its design uh, in, in Colorado. Uh, really nice design. Now, this looks like, you know, if this was a downtown, uh, it would re be really great. But what is it like in the rear? What is it like in an aerial? This is a regional shopping center. Category killer retails in a row, then a bunch of uh, big box retailers, and our funky little street there in the center, and down in the bottom are the out, out parcels with the restaurants. This is not walkable. It is not sustainable. The market area is based on 50, 100,000 population. And, every, and look at the parking they've provided. They know that. So this is, is not, uh, not going to be sustainable. Uh, I took a look at uh, some of the communities in um, APA's recent book on uh, sustainable development projects, Mashpee Commons and, uh, on Cape Cod. Uh, yeah, the commercial is a walkable street, but it's surrounded by, by parking. And up here at the, at the top, normal strip center, and then some office complexes around here, currently from Google, the nearest residential is 1,700 feet away. Now, and honestly, they've got some of these other areas planned for residential, but the residential's there yet. Um, how is it different than Woodfield Mall? Is, is it really, truly any different? Yeah, they enclose the street so you don't get rained on. That's really the only difference. It's a surrounding sea of parking lot. It's a regional shopping center that, that services a 10 to 50 radius uh, for customers. Nobody's going to walk. And as a matter of fact, you're, you're probably over a mile to the nearest fairly low-density residential out there. Um, I want to switch gears now and talk about efficiency. Uh, a lot of us think about efficiency as, oh, the developer gets a little more density. But if we're interested in sustainability, we've got to build highly efficient uh, developments that put a lot of people in a small area. Uh, years ago, I was doing a, a plan for Teton County in Jackson, Wyoming, and staff, which was starting to get into this new urbanism, said, well, what do you mean? Your floor area ratio is only 0.4. Well, yeah, you gotta, you're demanding on-street parking. And so if we look at, at on-street parking at 3.3 spaces per thousand, even with a 40-story tower, I can't get to an FAR of one. FAR of less than one is totally unsustainable. But if I go to structured parking, I immediately start building up the floor area ratio to create a sustainable community. And that means a really tough choice for planners. Will my city council mandate structured parking? Or will they issue 
a bond issue or put a tax on the downtown area to fund structured parking for people. Because if you don't, you are never, ever, ever going to have a sustainable community. Schomburg, those other examples I showed you are, are clearly not sustainable. Uh, so if we're going to deal with picking the high-hanging fruit, we've got some serious problems to look at. We've got a mandate structured parking. That gives us the higher density that we need to save the, on the amount of land we consume for a million square feet of office or retail or, or, or X number of dwelling units. Um, that implies that we have to take that. How many of you have work on a municipal ballot for their, doing their zoning? Many of you. Okay. Well, if you did, uh, how many of you would would ha have strip commercial dominating your community? Most of you you would. We, we, if there's vacant land there, we need to zone it for something else. And, and in this, the new urbanists are right. We need to try and con convert it to something else. But we may be just as well off converting it to high-density residential. We need to build new transit, period, end. Um, and we need to s change the way we plan from planning strips to planning nodes. Uh, true urban, I think we've already demonstrated if you want to get a floor area ratio that's really truly urban and you want to enclose the spaces so you're creating a real walkable community, and I mean the word community, the whole, um, and have a lot more building sites per square mile, then I've got to have structured parking. Uh, I need mixed use. I need vertical mixed use with residential and office above. Uh, and I need horizontal mixed uses that if I've got a transit station or something else, I, I build up the non-residential around the station, get any mixed use I can in there, but then I need to surround an area around that uh, with high-density um, uh, residential. Now, again, coming from APA's book, Santana Row in, in San Jose, California, here's their parking for the whole corridor. And although the original residential is fairly low density, at least they're putting in some high density residential to make this a more walkable community. And, and, and so that's important. Lake Oswego, Oregon, I think is really interesting. The um, main streets over here. And they had this old mini mall, if you will. It's not a very big mall. Um, and of course, it's surrounded by parking like all of them are. But on Main Street, they built this complex. This isn't a surface parking lot. This is a parking structure in the center. So they have vastly increased the amount of floor area that they're providing in this center. Uh, and they're filling in with higher density residential nearby. So now we have, at least at a small scale, a, a, a little bit of a, a walkable uh, community. Uh, this is uh, a, a look at the uh, complex. Um, uh, down on the bottom, you, you see the entrance in the interior to the structured parking, some of the adjacent housing, and another view of the street face. Uh, Meisner Park uh, in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. It's a mixed-use project. 
uh, commercial office, multifamily, and townhouses. Um, and it was built on a two-anchor mall that was torn down. You know, two department store anchors, a mall down the center connecting the two of them. Um, and immediately you can see structured parking dominating this. A very pedestrian-oriented uh, development. Movie theaters are in here. And when they began, they had a, uh, a non-chain, very good bookstore that, in fact, was a major anchor uh, for the center. They have a museum and an arts uh, and, and festival complex up here. Uh, the townhouses screen the parking structures from the existing residential. Um, so uh, the town views of the townhouse, uh, views of both the office and, and residential portion of the, uh, of the, the, resi the pedestrian complex, another view of the townhouses that screen the parking. Um, it's become very popular in the zoning ordinances to mandate ground floor commercial. Um, uh, we had the pleasure of, of doing Milwaukee's new zoning code and, and being one of the numerous people working on Chicago's. And one of the first things Chicago said, we already struck that provision. Why? What happens if you mandate ground floor commercial and nobody occupies it? Well, I can tell you, there's a perfect model, the corner store, which became non-conforming almost everywhere in the country. And what do you do with it? Yeah, you can rent the up stores because the, the storekeeper used to live up there. That's easy. But how do you convert that ground floor to usable residential? Almost impossible to do. Um, I would caution you need to be uh, beware of competition. My wife's an economic consultant, and she's horribly frustrated with the architects who say, oh, they'll come if we design it. That's not a viable marketing strategy. Um, and there's lots of places that, that aren't marketing uh, at the way they, uh, they thought. Think about it. I got, a, I got a McDonald's or a Burger King. I'm sitting on my own individual lot on the arterial. What incentive do I have to pay a higher rent to be on the bottom of, of a multi-story mixed-use structure? Zero. Um, so you need to do a market study. And I would, I would caution you, if, if you're going to mandate ground floor commercial, you better mandate a design that will allow it to be converted to something else if it doesn't work. Um, I go skiing and damaging myself re regularly in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is a, a brand new uh, town, uh, actually a whole new town uh, owned by the copper people out there. Uh, the town center is really struggling. The city's done it right. The city's extended transit out to this location. But they didn't do some of the intelligent things. When Rouse uh, was building uh, in, on the East Coast. He started with neighborhood centers. How am I going to get commercial into a neighborhood center? There's, I'm just building the houses. Who's going to be there? He said, I know. I'm going I'm to make sure every town center has a liquor store. 
and he basically subsidized. He said, okay, for you to pay the rent this liquor store is going to have to do, you're going to have to have this kind of sales volume. You start for free, and as your sales volume goes up, your rent goes up. These guys should have thought something like that, and they should have put a supermarket in right from the get-go and done the same sort of thing. As it is, they're losing money on unrented stores now, so they might as well subsidize something that would be good. And right at the entrance to this new town, guess what's just been built? A strip shopping center with a supermarket. So uh, that's cautionary. Um, this is a, one I found in Bossier City, Louisiana. Um, and it's fairly pretty. But when you started walking around, the majority of the ground floor uh, commercial was vacant with for sale signs. And when you looked at the interior, giant parking lots surrounded by uh, apartment buildings, this is never going to be a truly walkable community. And who wants to look out at their apartment window at, at the sea of parking? And if, then if you look a little more closely, major arterial, U.S. highway, basically a lot of strip commercial around it, no residential anywhere in sight other than the project. So there's not even any residential in the neighborhood that could walk to this place to help sustain the commercial. Um, and we all know what's going to happen there. That's not going to be more residential. That's going to be normal highway commercial. Uh, so... Um, we need to really think through some of these things. As I indicated before, we've got to eliminate strip commercial. It's killing us. Most of it has a floor area ratio of 0.3 to 0.4, hardly walkable. We all know that it's ugly. Uh, the older cities did it along the streets with the trolley or bus service. Suburban, we just zoned all, all the arterials. Uh, it's not a sustainable pattern. We need to create nodes. This is from Milwaukee. Take a look at the commercial. I can't remember the mileage, uh, but Chicago was saying they had, I think, 4,000 miles of commercial highway zoning in the city. And it made sense. When you w went to work on a trolley and came home in a trolley, Depending on how good a daddy you were, you either stopped at the, the local tavern and then stopped at the grocery store before you went home, or you did it the other way around. Um, and, and it worked. Um, but with the automobile, that changed everything. So we need to get rid of this strip commercial. We need to build nodes that concentrate uh, the commercial and then surround it with high-density residential. We, that model puts the maximum number of people within walking distance of a walkable node. And then the walkable node is going to have structured parking, so there's not a sea of asphalt to have to walk through uh, anywhere. We can't be afraid of height. Um, I think two years ago, I, I went to, at the national conference, and, and uh, um, it was... Um, wasn't Savannah, Georgia, but it was um, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the big coastal cities, Charleston. You know, they did their mapping. There's no way they can keep the sea out if it rises. Yes, it's a historic center. They 
all they could do is say, well, let's design ground floors so that when the flood comes in, damage is minimized. They would not consider a taller building. And yeah, it's historic, but you can do taller buildings. All you have to do is to go to Society Hill in, in, in Philadelphia. This is a national historic site. It used to be the, the market square for this area of Philadelphia. Those are 25 or 30-story towers. They use that to anchor the redevelopment of the entire area, most of which is in townhouses, but that enabled them to, to get intense uh, densities. And it's not rocket science, folks. It's a fairly easy zoning thing. We just have to think about it. Um, typically, what we do is we have a floor area ratio, the amount of floor area compared to the area of the site. Uh, and we have a maximum height limit. So if you've got a floor area of 0.5 and a three-story building, that's the way it worked out. What, what if I figure, I say that's the, let's do it with an average of a five-story building, and I figure out the maximum, if the whole thing was built five stories, but I allow 12-story buildings. Well, this is what you get. You get some two-story buildings and a 10-story building and five and six, three-story buildings in the same complex. It's just a matter of rethinking how we do it. Uh, if you're Charleston, you, you, you're going to have to say, well, a couple of streets, we're going to keep our rigid height limit, but we're going we're to allow 10-story or 12-story buildings so that maybe you have enough money to try and put a seawall around this thing, maybe. Uh, so, as we look at the modes of, of, of transportation, walking is severely limited by the distance we're willing to walk. Uh, bicycle, a little better. As we go up the line, the car has one advantage. It's totally, totally flexible. You can get to anywhere, and yeah, you may have to walk through a parking lot somewhere along the line, but it, it's walking at one end, and the car at the other end are totally flexible. It's the difference of how far you can go uh, and travel and what you can carry with you. Um, now, I want to I take a look at this because, again, um, transit is the one place that we know we can significantly shift the mode with which people travel. And, um, uh, so, and, and we know that's true because all of the old cities, New York, Philadelphia, Ch Chicago, and that some of the newer ones, San Francisco and Portland, have good transit systems, and they have much higher ridership. Um, so it's the one thing, that, w that one mode of transportation where we can significantly alter things. Now, the national average is low. Portland shows that you can invest, and it will pay off. And we have to go to nodes uh, as we do this planning. Now, Lake Forest, and again, this was in the APA book. <laughs> um, but 
as we as we look at it, <laughs> this is the problem. Look at all of this. Uh, now, the beauty is here's the transit station. Here's the Marshall Fields now, Macy's around a really nice little little town square and and other uh, higher density community. Now, the problem is Lake Forest is not a very dense community, um, uh, but it's it's you know it's it's nice and pretty. Um, uh, so. As we look at our parking requirements, they are based on the, this national average. Uh, and in fact, it's a terribly old national average because if you look at the parking manual, and there's stuff, studies from the 50s that are in there, uh, something ASBA should do something about. I want you to buy a bunch of these little, uh, send the little camera up a loss off my uh, unmanned uh, vehicle and and take pictures, but uh, as I change the modal mix, I'm reducing the number of cars, and that's going to ultimately enable me to come back and reduce the parking ratio, which means as I reduce the parking ratio, the more successful I am at doing that, the higher the floor area I get. And if I, if I follow my nodal example and put high-density residential around this, then I'm actually going to shift the, mo the mode of a number of people who can walk to work uh, or will walk down to restaurants uh, where there's lots of restaurants. Uh, I have a friend that, uh, that lives in, in Chapel Hill, and they always show me pictures of, of the little breakfast place in the middle of their new urbanist community. Well, that's great on Sunday or Saturday. Not so great the rest of the... How many times can you have coffee and, and, and donuts? Uh, you don't go there for dinner. There's all sorts of problems. So we need to have a, a lot of activities uh, in these areas. Um, and we have the central, central places or CBDs, employment centers, whether it's downtown Chicago or Schaumburg or what have you. Uh, the Edge City which is what Schomburg is, 2 million square feet of retail and over 6 million square feet of, of employment. Uh, sub, you know, the sub-regional centers are much smaller, um, and, but we can plan these as nodes. Uh, our rail lines, um, uh, one of the lessons from Lake Forest, the rail line and the service was there while Lake Forest was being designed really important. Um, and uh, if, if you look at markets, what it costs you to buy a house in the Chicago metropolitan area, all the rail stops on the commuter much higher prices. Why? Because the people who go there are going there expressly so they can get on the train. So we need to do that. But this system, the problem is there weren't all that many nodes out there. Um, I would urge you to think about, remember back, anybody remember Soroya Soroya? Not, not even. He, he was a Spanish guy back when trains were first coming, and he said the ideal transportation system was circular. So you need to consider radial rail lines, which this region is doing on the EJ&E, except for Barrington, which as usual is objecting to anything happening. Um, but 
that would give you a lot more, and it would give you a whole different direction in trips. Um, so we need to do some really long-term planning. We need to plan nodes and rail lines together uh, in advance. We need to co coordinate the roads with the rail lines, not the other way around. Uh, and we need the rail service available, if possible, from the very beginning. Um, and um, that's really important because the Utah community that I showed you, it was f year four before transit arrived. Well, I've never seen a study, but I know that not all of the people who moved there initially moved there because their place of work is at the other end of or along one of these rail lines. And once you move someplace, if you're going to work by car, you're going to continue to go by work to work by car if it's not served by, uh, by the transit. So we need re regional lines that are on both directions of transit. Sub-regional and others can be on either one of the lines, doesn't matter. Um, and we need something that may look like this. And then now I've added high-speed rail to the thing. After we start relocating, all the people are going to be flooded out along the coasts. Then we put in some high-speed transit, and we design relocation communities that are transit-oriented uh, with nodes and, and full uh, transit. Um, so the high-hanging fruit strategy isn't easy. Um, but if we're really serious about sustainability, we need to get serious about making regional nodes on, on transit uh, locations uh, where they can be served. Wouldn't it have been nice if the if O'Hare's uh, transit had gone out to Schaumburg before Schaumburg got built? Schaumburg would look totally different today. Um, we need the higher density surrounding area. We need to invest in transit. We need to mandate structured parking and downzone all that nasty strip commercial. Uh, the results, if, if we do this, if we do the, the zoning that has mandated structured parking, we only need to use a quarter to a third of the land we're currently using in strip commercial. Uh, and it could, you know, if you go to 40-story towers for offices, you can crank this number up even higher. If I build a surrounding residential around my node, I'm also going to gain share of people who walk and uh, bike to these nodes. Um, I'm going to have shorter trip lengths. Uh, that means less energy for the trips, less miles of, of roads in total. So with that, I will be glad to try and take questions, and David will be the wandering microphone. I will. Let's have a round of applause for Lane. So as a reminder, if you can put your hand up, I'll come to you with the microphone so we can record it for the podcast. Hi. Thanks for the presentation. Uh, just one question about all the data points you showed with respect to modes of transportation and commuting and so forth. 
was some of those might involve more than one mode, for example, in transit, you're walking to transit, walking from transit. So was there any computation of the amount of walking included in those commutes where you talk about some of the mixed modes like transportation? And yeah, I, I, I do, and this is from the National Transportation site. I don't believe so. I mean, I, I used to work up in Waukegan and, and come to NIPSI meetings and, you know, take the train and walk. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm familiar with, uh, with, with that situation. I believe this is pure walking trips, pure bike trips, and, and auto or transit trips as, the, as a primary mode. Um, I, I found your chart that showed the different times for uh, commuting to be quite interesting. And I, unfortunately, I missed the first 15 minutes of your talk because I was on the bus and didn't take a car. Uh, and it was much slower. So I hope you didn't cover this question on the part that I missed. But um, are you aware of actually actual exa good examples of node development that have occurred yet anywhere? Oh, you know, there's a lot of the Chicago rail suburbs are densifying near their transit stations. That's clearly positive. Um, it, at least in my experience as a consultant, it's awfully difficult to densify existing town cores. Now, Highland Park, um, they tore a whole block out, put underground parking in, and then put, put stuff above it. Um, but that's expensive. I also know that surrounding residential will object to the intrusion of the um, uh, of higher density into their area. There's all of the people who say, oh, we can't have taller buildings. Um, uh, I think the Lake Oswego example, I think, is a good example of at least one community that has taken one step to try and make its town center uh, uh, better. Um, uh, I, I think a number of the examples that were showed before you came in of supposedly walkable communities on the periphery of the region. <laughs> it's never going to be walkable on the periphery of the region, uh, you know, unless you're building enough of a community so it's reasonably self-sustaining. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of people doing things, you know, and there's a huge brouhaha in San Francisco as, as the money tries to drive out the, the lower income people as they densify and and, and uh, gentrify, uh, but San Francisco is well served by transit, and you know, the tech companies are providing their own transit on top of that. Um, uh, the side effects of that are, are questionable, but um, I think there's a lot of people trying to get at this. It's not easy, um, and, and of course, the money to do new transit <laughs> is is a huge, huge problem that's not going to go away. But wherever we've got it, or wherever we can put it, uh, my office used to be out in Mundelein, and uh, when, they, when they put transit on the Sioux line, they met their five-year ridership the first year. So there's a need for this thing. 
if we can in, if we can invest in it, and and uh, then if we start planning for the long-term future, not 20 years from now, but 50 years out, if we can if we could figure out where the next edge city is going to be somewhere, make sure that the transit's there before the guy the developer breaks ground. Um, in the process of getting people to give up their cars somewhat and do more walking and transit, what role do you think uh, increasing the cost uh, of uh, driving an automobile, either through higher gas taxes, higher plate fees, uh, uh, congestion pricing, and other things, what, what role do these things play? Uh, it, will, it will help, but of course Los Angeles is the perfect example of how difficult it is. Um, you know, people who, and I, w I wish I had time to uh, gather the mode of travel data for different places. I I'm sure Los Angeles is at the opposite end of the spectrum from San Francisco, um, and uh, Houston's probably running a close second um, at, at the bottom of the level. Um, so it, it varies all over the place. I, I think. I think as long as you can improve transit and you can invest enough to make it desirable to ride. We did some work in Annapolis a few years ago, and everybody would sit there and say, if the bus was reliable, I'd take it. The lawyer, the lawyer a mile and a half from the courthouse on the main arterial, he can't have his person sitting out there waiting for the bus for two hours to get to the courthouse. So they all drive. Um, and so we need reliable transit to, to trigger this, and we need to try and bring that commute time, which was uh, very long, you know, like 50% longer than the auto commute, as you just experienced. Uh, we need to make sure that that, that stuff comes quickly and on and time, and. Um, um, uh, you know, some places are, are, are pretty good at that. Uh, I, I ski every winter in, in Utah, and even the, even the buses that go up to the ski area run on time. They, they've done something right out there, and their ridership is increasing. So it, it's possible to do it if, if you really work at it. Um, this might be an obvious answer, but I was wondering, you stated that there are stores that people just wouldn't walk to, like Walmart or hardware stores, because there's a lot of uh, goods that people get from these stores and large products and stuff like that. So would the goal then be to build uh, smaller and more abundant stores uh, near residential, residential areas, so to lower the amount of, lower the distance, to limit the distance people have to travel to these stores? Well, I'm not the economist, uh, but it's, it's clearly an economic argument. Um, now, you know, whether all of those brick-and-mortar stores are going to be here in 20 years is another argument altogether. Uh, you know, if there's drones bringing you your Amazon purchase, um, it, nobody's going to walk to or drive to Walmart. Uh, I mean, you already see that uh, with... Uh, you know, Radio Shack is demising, uh, somebody just demised, and, and uh, uh, Best Buy is not doing great. And, and 
we all know that the bookstores have largely uh, disappeared. Um, I, I think I think you're right. Um, I, I've often thought that if if you could, and what's the delivery service on uh, groceries from one of the stores? Peapod. Peapod. I've often thought that you could, if you had something, could be just like the old corner store, 2,000 square feet of store. And, and if, you, if you could put your list and you knew the stuff was, was, was going to be good and it was going to be there on your way home, you could probably cut out some of those trips. Um, uh, but I think there's still rough edges on that. And, um, you know, the, the brick-and-mortar stuff is undergoing change. Now, restaurants, on the other hand, uh, I live an hour north of Green Bay. If I want sushi, I got an hour's drive to get sushi. Um, so needless <laughs> to say, even though I love it, I don't get it very often. Um, and that's why I love to go to Salt Lake City because I can get sushi and Greek and every other cuisine that I simply can't give where I live. Of course, where I live has a sailboat in the backyard, so there, there are some advantages. But um, I, think we, I think we have to be really careful about how far people are willing to walk or bike. Uh, you know, the argument, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the the Oregon case that the Supreme Court uh, said that it was unreal to charge a, or have a uh, hardware store dedicate a, a bikeway and, and pedestrian way to, to reach them through the green belt. Um, you know, and the examples were used. Well, I can't take my toilet home on a, on a bicycle. Um, so I think we have to be very careful with that. And I, we, we seem to be undergoing a situation where younger people are willing to live at higher densities, older people are willing to live at higher densities, and if we get those densities at transit nodes, then we make a significant, to me that's a easy call for changing the modal split. I'm not a planner, but I'm a tour guide and I'm always looking for new ways to talk about the city of Chicago. It seems like we're talking about reducing the size of a planned urban development, making them smaller under fringe areas around Chicago. Am I close to the right idea? Putting smaller condensed areas in like Oak Park and Aurora and other places well, rather than trying to keep them in the downtown area of Chicago? No, no I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that. Um, now, uh, Oak Park's maybe a little more difficult because of all the historic buildings. Uh, but all of these, all, of, all along your rail corridors, every one of them uh, has a, you know, go up the shoreline, Kenilworth, Winneka, you know, on up the line, to, all the way to Lake Forest and Waukegan, you have these nodes. What we have to do is get more people in the nodes. Lake Forest needs to take an example from Highland Park and put a bunch of high-density residential over the, those parking lots uh, and put in one big parking structure to, to make their downtown more desirable. Uh, now, the problem is Chicago is not exactly booming in growth. <laughs> uh, 
no, we don't want to. We don't want to go out to McHenry County and put a new node on the rail line. That's too far out. I, I think for Chicago because you, we have a pretty good rail system. Uh, you need, you know, the the real strategy, and a lot of people are following it, improving their downtown areas. We need to get as much density in there as, as conceivable. I represented a, a developer in Libertyville years ago who wanted to do townhouses <laughs> like 450 feet from the train station, and they turned them down because the neighbors didn't want the townhouses. Uh, we need to get pa we need as planners to get past that. It, they should have been a, you know, maybe an eight-story apartment building and townhouses would have been even better. I want to build off of that question there. And so I think there's kind of an inherent tension here of there's clearly enough latent capacity in the city of Chicago itself to absorb uh, future regional growth for, who knows, the next 20, 30, maybe even longer. I mean, the city used to have uh, more than 3 million people, used to have close to 4 million people in the city. Um, so clearly, that regional demand could be accommodated in the city itself, and clearly that would be superior from a sustainability perspective. So I assume that part of your starting assumption is that there is uh, always going to be, or for the foreseeable future, there's going to be demand uh, mm -hmm. outside of the city of Chicago. There will be demand that cannot possibly be satisfied by the city of Chicago. And so am I getting it right that you are simply advocating for satisfying as much of that suburban demand in existing nodes that can uh, absorb higher density development if designed properly and if the transit service is there? Is that the, the basic well, premise? I think we have to do both. Okay. Um, I... I, I I didn't do enough work on, on the Chicago ordinance to, to be good, but I did do the Milwaukee code. And, and both Chicago and Milwaukee and most big cities right at the end of World War II, they decided Chicago was going to go from 3 million people to 8 million people. And they, Chicago and Milwaukee zoned accordingly. I can tell you in Milwaukee there were um, square miles of areas that were either zoned for apartments or duplexes that were uh, nearly 100% single-family homes. And those residents were going ballistic when somebody would buy three lots, tear down three single-family homes, and, and come in and, and build an apartment. Um, uh, we ended up down-zoning those areas because... Uh, you were basically saying growth can only occur by disrupting a neighborhood um, and concentrated on those old uh, commercial corridors and other places to build, uh, build the increased density and, and some other uh, techniques. Uh, so if you have stable single-family neighborhoods in Chicago, if, if they were zoned for multifamily, I don't think you want to do that. I think you want to identify neighborhoods that can be changed. I mean, Chicago's, Chicago, the south of the loop, you've had a huge shift in, in land use uh, from, from what used to be there. Uh, and uh, that's putting a lot more people within walking or transit district. We want to continue to do that. Uh, there seems to be a trend in the... Uh, in the youngest generation to accept, to want to live in cities, 
to not want to mow their lawn, uh, and we should continue to encourage that. Um, but I don't think that means we have to shut down the suburbs. Um, I worked in Dane County uh, and, and Madison a few years ago, and uh, um, the county board, which was dominated by Madison residents, um, they eliminated large lot single-family homes in all of the townships, except for a couple of them that didn't sign on to county zoning. And their argument to me was, well, that's, that's creating sprawl. So in, in any event, I, I, I think we have to uh, be balanced. Um, there's always going to be a market for, for people that want to live in every conceivable community character type. I'll put an ad for my, my two community character books. Um, we make a mistake when we try and dictate how people have to live, um, but we should try and accommodate it and accommodate it in, in a, a sensible fashion. I argued to Madison that they should, they should have an area on their fringe that they permitted half-acre lots because instead of those, the people who were going out who were key people in the city of Madison in terms of their influence, they were losing them. If they provided a place that they could live and, and have the, the quality of life that they wanted within the city, the city would be better off. Um, so I think we just need to be intelligent about um, not trying to, to mandate how somebody wants to live, but try and make sure that every one of the living environments is more sustainable um, than it would be without our intervention. I think that's a good final word. Let's have a round of applause for Lane Kendig. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Lane Kendig for a thought-provoking and informative program on walkability. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.